So have some grace with me. I'm a little tired. But we started a new sermon series last week called Wired to Connect. And so our sermons about connection are coinciding with our membership renewal process. So the way we do church membership here at Blue Ocean is we renew it every single year. Um, And so if you're currently a member or you're somebody who's been coming a while and you know like, yeah, I'm ready to just re-sign up, there is a membership letter available, I believe. Is it Penny? Sorry, we're a little disorganized. Remember, yeah, we have membership letters. So if you want to fill it out and turn it into one of the staff members, it's back there on the welcome table. You can feel free to do that. But maybe you haven't been around as much and you want to hear a little bit more about what our church is about. We're going to be talking about connection for the next three weeks. And then the two weeks following that, we're going to hone in a little more specifically about the vision and values of this church and where we see the church going for the next year. And so you might want to wait um, until the end of that, but you can do it any time between now and then. So Ken kicked us off on this series on connection last week. We are using uh, this book right here. It's called Wired to Connect. It's uh, written by a psychiatry professor at Harvard University named Dr. Amy Banks. And what she's doing is talking about how connection with ourselves and with other people, that right there, is actually crucial for human happiness and and for our health. She says that when we're able to have healthy, close connections with others, that part of our brain that registers social inclusion and belonging works the way it's supposed to work. But it can get thrown off track. And so she talks about how it's difficult to connect with other people if our brains aren't able to register the signals correctly because of past negative experiences that we've had. And so the four ways that she identifies that help us to connect better with others include one, our ability to feel calm around people, which Ken talked about last week. Two, our ability to feel accepted by others. Three, our ability to resonate with the inner states of other people. And four, our our brain's ability to feel energized by these experiences, essentially giving us dopamine hits when we're connecting with other people who are safe. And so when the parts of our brains that help us connect like this get off kilter, whether because of trauma or because of past experiences of feeling excluded or even just because of the general culture that we live in that's filled with shame and judgment, we can have trouble interacting with other people and forming deep, meaningful relationships. And so her book is really practical. What she does is she names various brain exercises that can literally help us rewire the parts of our brains that are misfiring. And so I've actually been trying some of it. I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, The segment of the book that we're going to focus on this week is the part that's about our brain's ability to feel accepted by other people. So I don't know, have any of you guys watched that TV show, The Great British Bake Off? Got Okay, a few nods. It's essentially a cooking show, and you can watch it on Netflix or YouTube, but it's like one of the nice ones. It's not like like Gordon Ramsay, you know, who's there like yelling at everybody. It's very polite and very British. And so I watch it while I'm doing the elliptical at the gym, usually. So I can appreciate the irony of watching a baking show while I'm like doing the elliptical. But the weird, really weird thing is, as I was telling Rachel last night, I was watching it on the train ride home. I was like, I don't even really like baked goods that well. Like, I like them, but ice cream and dairy, like, those are my Achilles heel. But there's something fascinating about watching these people make cakes to me. So I had watched season four on Netflix, and so I went back and watched the first season on YouTube. And in the very first show that they have, there's this very sweet gentleman named Mark, and he's an older guy, and Mark wants so badly not to get cut from the show. But it's pretty clear that Mark is not the best baker on the show. And so he makes a a pretty poor cake. 
And he was told that his was, you know, probably at the bottom of the judge's list. And this poor man, he gets on, he just starts crying. You know, he's just so sweet. And he talks about how badly he wants to stay in and about how he knows he can cook better and he knows that he needs to try harder to stay. And it was like, it was so heart-wrenching that one of the hosts kind of gave a little aside. And she talked about how, you know, baking something for other people is personal. You know, it's like, it's a gift. It's an act of love that we present to other people. And so when we feel like that gift is being rejected or criticized or told that it's not good enough, that it can feel really painful. And so poor Mark's brain seems to be registering this rejection in a way that maybe is a little bit out of proportion to the situation. You know, because it's probably hitting a well-worn part of his brain that's used to rejection. And so all of the stories that he's told himself about not being good enough or not you know, feeling, like, um, feeling like he's less than, those stories are also manifesting in his emotion. Right? So it's like he's equating his not baking as well as he usually does with social exclusion. And so the reality is it's just a cooking show and there aren't even really any prizes. It's not like they're competing for $100,000 or something. And to even make it on means you're a pretty darn good home baker. But here he is, he's sobbing and he's telling himself that he needs to try harder to belong and we kind of love it, I kind of love it because I can relate to it because we've all felt rejected at some point. Well, scientists have shown that even a mild form of social exclusion or perceived social exclusion can actually affect our brains. And so I'm not even gonna attempt to pronounce the part of the brain that's affected, it's somewhere deep in the frontal cortex. Um, But it's the brain that registers both the physical and the emotional pain that we have, including pain resulting from social exclusion. And Dr. Banks says, you know, it's a really good thing that we've got this part of our brain. Because it's the part of our brain that tells us, like, if we get cut and we're bleeding, it's the part that tells us, I'm in pain, I need to stop the bleeding. Right? Or if your hand's on a stove, it tells you you need to move your hand. It can also tell us... um, It can also like let us know when we're not being included in a social group because it kind of clues us in to whether or not we need to modify our behavior or to maybe change our social group in order to survive. She says, you know, we've got this biological need for connection because back in our hunter-gatherer days, without other people, we would literally die if we were alone. So our brains are wired to want to be in group connection. And so when this part of the brain that measures pain from social exclusion is overactive, like it might be with Mark the Baker. It's like a fire alarm that's going off in every social encounter. It's like you could go into a safe social situation and you can still experience it as painful. Or you can go into a safe space and you can go in expecting that you're gonna be excluded. You're like, I'm just one of those people, like I'll just be the one at the back that nobody invites to things. And so that's the expectation that you go in even when the expectation isn't actually warranted by the evidence. It's like your brain is sending warning signals when you're not being excluded. There's a fire alarm with no fire. And what this can do is it can cause us to magnify the bad in relationships and to not really be able to see the good that is going on. And what this does is it results in a relationship paradox, right? So we begin to withhold parts of ourselves for our own protection, right? Because that fire alarm's going off so that we don't feel excluded but then we feel excluded because we're withholding parts of ourselves. So I'm talking a little bit here from personal experience. You know, as most of you guys know, I had a pretty rough couple of years, about 2013 to 15, and I found myself feeling more anxious in social situations than I was used to feeling. You know, my public and very dramatic social exclusion, it was causing my fire alarm to go off when that wasn't always needed. Um, 
and I want to say first that, I, one, I'm a big fan of medicine. Right? I'm a big fan of medicine. I happily take some anti-anxiety medication. I've been getting therapy for a year and a half um, because those things can also help the brain to heal from its trauma and its feeling of exclusion, right? So if you're feeling like, gosh, I've got social anxiety and I take medication, this is by all means keep taking it. But I've also found some of the exercises that my therapist has been having me do are outlined in this book because what she's doing is helping me work to get over that overactive part of my response system. She's trying to get it to tone down and to normalize again. And so I've actually picked up a couple of the other exercises in the book so that I can rewire my brain so that those neuropathways aren't so well trodden, the ones that are telling me that I need to be um, on alarm or on alert. I would say I'm 90% better than I was a year and a half ago. But yeah, having felt the before and the after, you know, of, of what it is to be on both sides of trauma, I was relatively lucky to have not much trauma in my life up to that point. And so I had this sort of pretty normal, healthy way of being able to respond to other people and then experiencing it and being like, oh, I don't trust my brain's response. Like there's something off here. I just wanna say it's real, but there's hope. And I would say there's especially hope if you're connecting with non-judgmental people who can help you heal. And this is where I think a faith community that's centered on the values of Jesus can come in and has come in, right? There's no human community that's 100% perfect. We are all humans, so where there are humans, we are human. And there are times that we will hurt each other, right? And that's why we need a system of forgiveness. Um, churches are like families. I know it was one of the things that Sharonda said stuck with her when I said that in a belong class years ago. Like, there's always a weird aunt or a, you know, an offensive uncle. But like any family, you just kind of accept each other and you can learn to love and appreciate each other. And so our commitment at Blue Ocean is to fostering a community that values belonging and acceptance. And we do that because we've received the gift of belonging and acceptance from God. And we've watched Jesus and his disciples model how this can be worked out. And when faith communities can follow suit, it's been shown that this can actually increase people's happiness. You know, like even church attendance, when you're connecting with a group that's accepting of you, it can actually, um, people live longer who are part of church communities. This was one of the things that I learned from my wife. So in her research for her master's social work degree, she wrote a book. And the question she was asking was, as a queer woman of faith, is church even good for me? You know, if I'm gay, like, is it even healthy for me to be going? And her answer seemed to be, correct me if I'm wrong, it is helpful when the church is accepting. Yeah, I'll qualify. Yeah, and it can be helpful, but it can also be very destructive if it's not, right? So our, our, our goal is to try and create a place that is accepting of all people. So let's delve into a passage here from Luke chapter 7. This is a story about Jesus. I'm going to start by reading verses 36 to 50. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited them saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and he would know the kind of woman that she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, he said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 
Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to the woman, she said, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Right? So here we have Jesus. He's been invited to the home of this Pharisee who is just a religious teacher. And the guy's named Simon. And he's invited some of his other religious teacher friends over. Now, in any culture, we know there are certain things that you're expected to do as a host or a hostess, right? So like in America, if somebody comes over to your house, unless they're a really close friend or one of your family members, there are things that you're expected to do. You go and you answer the door and you say, hi, welcome, I'm glad you're here, can I take your coat? Right? Have a seat, can I get you something to drink? There's sort of a protocol or a ritual that we go through with others when they come over. And if we don't do even a couple of these things, it can communicate a lack of welcome. So let's say you came over to my house and I didn't offer to take your coat, I leave the TV on, and I don't ask you to sit, and so we're just standing in the doorway. That's probably going to communicate that I'm not really expecting you to stay very long and that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this will be a brief visit, right? So here in the opening of this story, a Middle Easterner in the time of Jesus would have sensed that something was off here, right? They would know that Simon and his friends were actually being really rude to Jesus, because it would have been reasonable for Jesus to expect to be greeted with a kiss. It would, have been, it would have been reasonable for him to be presented with a bowl of water to wash his feet and perhaps a servant who would have come and washed his feet and then for him to be given oil for his hands and for his head and his hair. You know, I, I got to spend a little time living over there in, in, um, in Eastern Jerusalem and in Israel and then we did some work in Africa and I have never washed my feet so much in my entire life. It's so dusty that even now, it's just like that's your first instinct when you come in is to wash your hands and feet. So that's just the protocol, especially when you're, you're sharing roads with, you know, back in Jesus' day, especially more with like cattle and such. And then your, your hands and your face get really dry. So the oil is a kindness to keep you from cracking and drying out. So Jesus would have expected these things. And we know that they were missing because Jesus says to Simon, he says, do you see this woman? I came to your house, but you didn't give me any water for my feet. And later, you didn't give me a kiss, but she did. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet, right? These were noticeably missing. And so if we can imagine the scene, it's like Jesus walks in and there's all these other religious teachers. And what was that like? Like, was he greeted by silence? Was it kind of everybody sort of awkwardly staring at him? Were they you know, looking at him with contempt? sort of awkward ignoring of his presence while everybody else is washing their feet and rubbing oil on their hands and on their hair and washing up, preparing to eat together. You know, like, what was Jesus feeling in that moment? And so since nobody, apparently, is tending to Jesus, he goes and he just goes and reclines at the table. So in the Middle East, then, as in some parts of the world still today, 
um, the way you eat is there's, there's like food put on the ground on a, on a spread and then there are cushions around. And so you go and you either sit or you lay on the cushions. And in Jesus' time, you would recline usually on your left side because your left hand is considered unclean so that you could use your right hand to reach in and eat. And so the order you would do that is you'd come in, sit on a stool, wash your feet, and then you would wait around to see um, who was going to recline first. And there was an order to reclining. You would recline by status. So usually the person who was the oldest or the most senior would go and sit down first and followed by the next and on down, right? So you would wait around after you washed your feet to kind of watch and see what other people were doing. And, you know, I was trying to think of an equivalent here in the United States, and I thought, you know, there's not really, because we don't have these sorts of orders. You know, sometimes a host might sit at the end of a table. If any of you guys have a really traditional family, sometimes the oldest person, like the matriarch or patriarch of the family, like my grandma sometimes sits at the end at Thanksgiving, something like that. Um, but what I could think of that came closest would be maybe like a wedding party. You know, there's an order to that. And if somebody who's not part of the bridal party goes up and like plops down right next to the bride and just starts eating their dinner, right? People would notice. They would be like, what are you doing? Right? So Simon's being rude, the host here. And so Jesus kind of counters that by just going and plopping down at the table in a way that asserts his own authority. Right? He enters that dining area and he reclines. And I mean, he was probably about 30 years old. It's not likely he was the oldest one there or the most senior, but he kind of owned the place. He could have left, but he decides to stay and challenge her thinking. And what he's doing, he's prophetically taking, I think, one, his rightful place at the table as the one with the most spiritual authority. And he's demanding to be treated with human dignity. He's demanding to be treated with human dignity and with respect. And he's also letting them know that that woman belongs there just as much as they do. They think that they know the order. They think they know the status. And he's saying, you know, let's think about this again. So what happens next? The woman with this alabaster jar of perfume, she leans down and she begins to clean Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And the text says that she lived a sinful life in that town. So she was probably a local prostitute. And it may have been Mary of Bethany, one of the other gospels, talks about that. But most likely what she had done is she had heard Jesus' message. You know, he'd been out preaching around and about, and she heard his message that she was loved by God. She was welcome in his community, even as she was an outcast in her own. And she came there to thank Jesus. She came there to thank him and to worship him. I don't even think she came there to like beg for forgiveness or anything, because I think she was there because she already knows she's forgiven. Right? She knew the good news of the gospel. But instead of simply giving Jesus this perfume as a gift, she finds herself coming in and watching this scene where this prophet who has loved her so unconditionally has invited, been invited to this house only to be insulted. So Simon and his friends, they're mocking Jesus, right? They're saying, look, you think you're a respectable rabbi, but to me, you, you're nothing. I owe you nothing. I don't even owe you common courtesy. And public humiliation causes you to lose face in Asia. Right? Asia includes the Near East. It's a shame-based culture, and so Jesus would have certainly felt that he had lost face with this intentional rudeness, right? It was meant to be deeply humiliating to him. They were trying to put him in his place. And this woman's response to the meanness and to the humiliation of the Pharisees is to weep, right? I think that's actually an appropriate <coughs> response to cruelty. She starts to cry, and she's weeping because of the lack of dignity that's been afforded to this man who embraces outcasts. 
And if we read the text closely, it says she was actually already weeping before she bent down to wipe his feet. It says, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Right? So it's almost like she was standing over the place where he was reclining. And she was crying at this insult, and her tears were hitting his feet as she was watching all this unfold. And his feet, of course, were unwashed, so they were dirty, and so her tears were mingling with that dirt, and they were running down his feet. And so she gets down with her hair, and she begins to wipe it. It's a compassionate response to Jesus' vulnerability and his rejection. And it's also an act of love and worship for the one who stands up for people like her, right? The ones who feel excluded. I mean, if Jesus felt excluded in that group, how much more so that woman? Now, feet in the Middle East and much of Central Asian culture are taboo even today. You know, I know like when I lived in China, we always had several pairs of shoes inside any door. When you come in, you immediately take off your street shoes and you put on your inside slippers. And it's just custom to remove your shoes as you go into any kind of private space so that you're not tracking in sort of the filth from the streets. Um, it's a matter of hygiene. You know, especially in the agrarian society. It's why throwing a shoe at somebody in the Middle East is like the highest insult that you can give. And here this woman is, and she's kissing Jesus' unwashed feet. And it's like she's saying, look, I don't care how filthy you are. To me, you are beautiful. To me, you're beautiful. And this is the kind of response that I think you you might get from somebody um, like your partner or your parent or a parent to a child. It'd be like if somebody was out and they'd been riding their bike maybe on the Padawa Trail, you know, 18 miles, and they're filthy, and they had fallen, and they were bleeding a little bit, and they come home, and it doesn't matter to you. You're still going to hug them and make them feel better. All the dirt and all the sweat and all the blood, you're like, I don't care, because to me, you're precious. And so this woman is saying to Jesus, she's like, look, you've given me everything. You've given me good news that I'm part of the family of God. You've treated me with dignity when other people have despised me. You've given me love and hope and belonging and purpose when the rest of the world treats me like I'm an object. So she's doing this, and as she does it, she lets down her hair. And this is significant because if she were married, doing this in public would have been grounds for divorce without a financial settlement. With touching Jesus would also be grounds for divorce without a financial settlement. Now, some of the rabbis quoted in the Talmud said it was a man's religious duty to divorce such a woman. You know, a woman's hair in the Middle East, then as well as today, both in conservative Muslim as well as Jewish cultures, is considered highly sexual. Right? In the first century, really pious Jewish women didn't even uncover their hair until their wedding night. So this is a woman who was clearly not pious according to the standards of the Pharisees. So Ken Bailey, he says, he's one of the, um, he's a really great Middle Eastern scholar. He said, no one around the room could have missed the overtones of this woman's gesture. By unloosing her hair, she's making some form of an ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. And the critical question is, will he accept or will he reject this extraordinary act? This is an incredibly sensual, intimate moment between the two of them. And Jesus, in this scene, he understands her vulnerability. And he knows that if he rejects her after this offering of love and devotion to him, it, it would devastate her. Right? That would cause all of her brain alarm bells to go off. It would be socially devastating as well as personally devastating. 
And Jesus sees that this woman is the only person in the room who seems to actually empathize with his pain and his rejection by Simon. You know, where nobody else was speaking up on Jesus' behalf. This outcast of a woman stood with him and she was suffering. And while this is going on, Simon is sitting there and what's he doing? He's judging. He says, if this man was a real prophet, he would know that this woman was a prostitute. So Jesus says in verse 4, he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And this is pointed in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke. This was pointed. It's like, let me be blunt, Simon. I have something to say to you. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money. Which of them loved him more? Right, people... The Asian scholar Presbyterian pastor George Foote, he says that the rabbinic understanding of sin, God would have clearly been the creditor in this story. He believes everybody in this scene would have understood that. It would have been like logical to the hearers of this tale, right? God was the moneylender. And so here's Simon standing in front of Jesus. You've got this woman who are, who's at Jesus' feet, and Jesus is talking about this story about a moneylender and two debtors. So who do we think he was talking about? One, two, Right? And he's saying, look, there's one debtor who owes 500 denarii, and there's another one who only owes me five. And this word debtor and the word sinner in Aramaic is the same. So Jesus is doing this as sort of a a double entendre here. And what he's doing is he's insinuating that Simon is just as much of a debtor, he is just as much of a sinner as that woman, right? That he is just as helpless before God, just as unable to pay his own debts as she is. And so what Jesus is doing with this story is he's challenging Simon's high view of himself. He's pointing out that Simon is in need of forgiveness himself for his rudeness as a host, for his pride. And he's saying that we are none of us inherently better than others, that we are all in need of forgiveness. And that God, the creditor, forgives them both. The other inflammatory thing going on here then is that Jesus is, of course, insinuating that he is, in fact, the moneylender, right, in this metaphor, So he's equating himself on some level with God. And so Jesus is taking this recognized symbol for God and he's pivoting it onto himself. And then we wonder why people killed him for blasphemy. And so the creditor, Jesus, he's for one forgiving both of the debtors. And then what he does is really genius. He takes the focus away from the woman and the judgment that people were placing on her profession and on her for being there. And he forced the crowd to look at the responses to the forgiveness of all of their sins. And he says to Simon, which one will love the creditor more? In other words, Jesus is saying, Simon, who loves God more? You or this woman? Right? Who loves God more? You or this woman? And you can just hear Simon, you know, he's so arrogant. He's like, I suppose, suppose is the word there. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly, as opposed to before, when you, Simon, judged this woman incorrectly. And then Jesus asks him, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Look at her, she's a person. And what she's doing is she's making up for your inexcusable failures as a host. Simon, you are the problem here. You didn't give me water. You didn't give me oil. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't accept me at your table. But she, she gave me all of these things. 
And I love this story on so many levels. I love it because it shows that Jesus is more impressed with people who are compassionate and vulnerable and courageous and standing up for those who are excluded than he is about the learned and the self-declared faithful. You know, that woman belonged in that group even less than Jesus did, and yet she is the only one who acted with kindness toward him in this room. And so Jesus looked to her, and he held her up to the religious teachers, and he said, you should be like her. And I also love this story because it reveals the nature of the community of Jesus, right? It's that Jesus accepts everyone. He even forgives Simon. He even calls him out and he invites him to change his ways. You know, he's saying, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're male, if you're female, if you're genderqueer. It doesn't matter if you're highly educated. It doesn't matter if you're a high school dropout. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter if you're socially ept or not. It doesn't matter if your kids can keep it together in school. It doesn't matter. You belong. Because God so loved the world, you belong. I think, like, theologically, I could preach a thousand sermons, maybe more, on acceptance and belonging. Like, the entire biblical narrative centers around those topics, right? This whole enterprise is about humans knowing that we belong to God and with God and what Jesus did and poured himself out with love in order to make that a reality. The challenge is enacting this in our relationships and in our community of faith. And the challenge for some of us is to be able to receive this gift of love and belonging. Because past experiences tell us that we can't have it or we don't deserve it. And that fire alarm goes off that prevents us from meaningfully connecting with other people around us. Now, so one of the exercises that Dr. Banks gives in her book um, is that she talks about how our brains get overactive because of judgments that we're making. So here, I didn't actually finish my sermon. I'll confess that. <laughs> I was in Chicago, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like try and speak a little bit from the heart here. Um, maybe I can give some of my own e- examples here. So, you know, I had an overactive part of my brain going off, and what that was causing me to do was to, to look at people who were safe and had proven themselves safe and act with fear and act with alarm and act like, oh, they're not going to really accept me as a pastor or they're gonna blame me for everything that went on. Am I truly a part of this group? Can I be vulnerable? Because I've been so hurt by being vulnerable before. Is it okay? Is it safe? And then I was even translating that in some parts to some of my interactions with the other Blue Ocean pastors, all of whom left the vineyard over exclusionary policies, right? They've proven themselves safe. They've taken like real risks to themselves, but I would still feel a little bit like, I don't know, I'm gay, I'm a woman, I'm younger, who's gonna listen to me? And so I'd be talking about it um, with other people, and my therapist pointed this out, and I don't like to use the pulpit to work out my own stuff, but it's the example I have. You know, I'd be talking to her about a couple of things that made me feel really excluded. And she'd be like, okay, you know, those things are valid. You can listen to your feelings. You've proven you're actually really emotionally intelligent. I can, you know, I could see things going on before other people could see them usually. She's like, but I think what you're doing is magnifying these one or two bad incidences and you're not able to see all of these other really beautiful things that are going on. You know, so she was trying to get me to move my brain from feeling judged to feeling grateful. And that's actually one of the exercises here that Dr. Banks is talking about. She said, you know, gosh, if you want to keep that overactive part of your alarm system going, feed it judgment. Feed it judgment. Because it's funny, because the more judgmental we are of other people and of ourselves, the more we fear being judged. Right? My mom used to say that Bible verse, I don't even know where it's from, over and over again. Don't judge lest you be judged. 
Do not judge lest you be judged. There's like some wisdom in that. Because when we're self-critical, we're just aware that like we critique everybody else. So they're probably critiquing us too. Which may or may not even be true. So she said the way that you can tone this down is to just try and pay attention for a week to every time you say something critical or judgmental in your mind or out loud about other people or about yourself. And not to judge yourself for having judgments because we all have them. She's like, just notice it. She's like, it'll be a lot, especially for people with an overactive system like this. And to just catch yourself and to try and say, okay, well, why don't I try and think of something generous about that person or about that situation or about that people group or about the people voting for that particular political candidate? (laughs) (laughs) Who shall remain nameless from the pulpit? But... (laughs) And she said, this will actually have the effect of rewiring your brain, that you're not feeding that same neural pathway that's lighting up all of these things. And so what I've found that is helpful to me, this is one of the things I've employed from the book, is that every time I feel like something hits me and I'm like, oh, I think they're excluding me, to be like, okay, that may, maybe, maybe that's valid, but I'm going to try and think of three ways that I've actually felt validated and supported by that person or by that group has been really helpful, right? It's sort of toning down some of that anxiety. And so I think we're going to end here by taking a couple of minutes of silence. And honestly, until this moment, I didn't know what I was going to do for this. Um, (laughs) What I think I'd like us to do here is to spend these two minutes and one, slow down our breaths, but then picture ourselves in, um, in that scenario with Jesus as the woman with the alabaster jar. And just picture ourselves receiving the unconditional love and affection of God. That it doesn't matter that we're prostitutes. It doesn't matter that the other people in the room don't think that we belong there. It doesn't matter any of these things about ourselves that we're dealing with. It doesn't matter if we feel overly anxious in situations that Jesus just loves us and accepts us and accepts whatever gift it is that we have that we can bring to him, be it small be at large, what we have as who we are. So I'm just going to say, come Holy Spirit. I'll kind of keep my eye on the time. Let's just breathe and experience the acceptance and the love of God. I'm finding that like, as I do this, I'm just going to give you a little prompt that I'm even kind of naming some of the things about myself that I sometimes make, that make me feel a little unworthy. Just say, Lord, with my impatient self, in spite of that, you still love and accept me. Just maybe name one or two of the things that you feel critical of yourself about. Just say, Lord, in spite of this, you still love and accept me.
Yeah, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our addictions, in spite of our doubts, in spite of everything, you still love us. You accept us at your table, and we are so grateful for that, Lord.